Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everybody. Welcome to episode number five of Push Dose EMS brought to you by Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. My name is Jeff Matcha. I am your, your lovely host for the day, as well as the education and QA manager for Milwaukee County. Uh, joining me this morning uh, is our lovely usual assortment. I think we got everybody here uh, going down my list. I have Linda Matrish. Uh, QA Supervisor, welcome Linda. Hello everybody. Uh, below her I see Associate Medical Director Dr. Matt Chin. Good morning Dr. Chin. Morning. Next on my list, moving down, uh, Medical Director for the System, Dr. Ben Weston. Morning Dr. Weston. Good morning. Uh, one more with no screen on today. Uh, current EMS Fellow, and more on that to come shortly. Uh, Dr. Tom Engel, welcome Dr. Engel. Good morning everyone. And last but not least, joining us this morning, uh, EMS Division Director, Mr. Dan Pojar. Good morning, Dan. Hello everybody. Terrific, thanks everybody for joining me today. Uh, our major topic of discussion, this go around on this episode is looking at spinal injuries and spinal motion restriction. Uh, some of the guideline updates some of the science behind what we're doing and why we're doing it. I'll be, but before we get too involved and too deep into uh, the medicine today, we do have some updates from around the system. So first I'm gonna bring uh, Dan into the conversation. Dan, any updates from the, EM, the OEM office? Yeah, I got just a couple here and I hope to be brief. I uh, just wanted to thank the entire system for all the hard work with the COVID uh, response. Uh, just know that it is still here, even though uh, Milwaukee County is doing fairly well compared to other parts of the nation. Uh, but please continue to wear your masks, uh, practice physical distancing and really good uh, hand hygiene, uh, especially you know in the firehouses uh, and set an example for the community when you're out there by wearing your mask. Um, fire departments have really been uh, kind of the front and center as far as the response with this. And so, uh, so far I've seen everyone doing a really good job of setting that example. So just continue to do so and, and kudos on the COVID work. I know about a month ago now, a little bit more than that, uh, state license renewals were sent out uh, with the target solution assignment. So please uh, renew your license and uh, uh, get that uh, target solution assignment completed. Uh, the due date is the end of September, but we all know that you should get it done sooner than later. So please do so. And then finally, just wanted to talk about uh, couple opportunities for the system here with our administrative review process. This is really a meeting that we have uh, every even month with the EMS liaisons from each fire department to talk about projects, uh, processes, and also new opportunities for the system. Uh, we do have now four subcommittees that are, uh, we use engagement from really every fire department in the county and we're always looking for more members. So if you're interested in participating in any of these uh, just shoot an email to qualityems at milwaukeecountywi.gov and we will get you set up with the right person to be in contact with uh, the, the subcommittees. Uh, the first one is a new product and evaluation committee. So any new medical device that's out there that's cool and upcoming or something that we don't currently have, there's an opportunity for this committee to look at it and review it and then provide a recommendation to the system. Um, Research is a, is a little bit newer one, but that's starting to uh, get a little bit busier. There's some opportunities coming up uh, shortly here. We'll probably, I'll leave that as a teaser probably for the next episode here on, on research project that's uh, 
getting proposed to the system. Uh, Linda Mattress has been leading the guideline and policy subcommittee, uh, and that's the protocols and the, the standard care uh, guidelines for patient treatment. So all the protocol updates that are done annually or 18 months, whatever the time frame is, on those uh, has been led by her. And then uh, finally, the new uh, one that we are creating is an equity in healthcare, and the, the title is still getting worked on just a little bit. But uh, the, the focus of this would be to ID uh, areas in the community with uh, high burden of disease. So we're going to start likely with chronic conditions, um, and it would provide opportunities to revise guidelines and our practices uh, for engaging and taking care of those patients. Uh, as a lot of us know, and if you've been paying attention to the, to the media lately, COVID has really highlighted the racial and social disparities in the county. Um, so this also provides opportunity for local engagement and education of those communities uh, to really get them to uh, be more aware of the, the burden of disease in the community and also uh, different ways to uh, get some care. So those are the major updates from the office. Thanks for the time. Appreciate all the work you do. Excellent. Thanks, Dan. Uh, yeah, definitely some good opportunities out there. Uh, so if there's uh, departments and members that are interested in being involved and helping out in any of those, uh, please reach out to us. Uh, we'll get you everybody working. Uh, next, some updates on the medical direction team. So Dr. Weston and then I believe Dr. Chin has some updates for us. All right. Thanks, Jeff. So yeah, just a couple quick updates here. Um, first for COVID-19, just to echo what uh, Dan was saying. Uh, so this will probably change over the next few weeks, but right now what we're seeing is uh, certainly a resurgence um, and an uptick in COVID across most of the country. Uh, it started mostly in the, the southern states, uh, but it's really expanded to just about the entire country and Wisconsin's being affected as well. We see counties all around us with increasing uh, numbers of cases and rates of positive tests. Uh, and certainly Milwaukee County will not be far behind. So uh, we do expect an uptick coming soon. We continue to watch that. We continue to uh, increase our testing and response infrastructure. Uh, but as Dan said, uh, continue to stay safe, continue to use your PPE uh, and exercise a high level of caution. Uh, moving on from COVID, um, we're forming a new uh, branch of OEM uh, that we're going to call the core team. So uh, for a little bit of a background here, we have our special event team, which does an outstanding uh, job covering special events at Pfizer Forum, Panthers Arena, the Zoo, uh, State Fair last year, a number of different venues. Obviously, most of those are out of commission for the foreseeable future uh, with COVID. And so we've been, uh, Dan and I have been talking, looking at ways to um, repurpose our special event team uh, to keep them moving, keep them uh, going forward and having activity, but also serve the community, uh, especially in a time of pandemic. And so what we're looking to do is form the core team, which stands for Community Oriented Regional EMS, C-O-R-E. Um, and so this would be a mission-based team. Uh, one mission in the future could be special events, but, uh, or certainly will be special events once they're back. Uh, but for now, we're looking to focus on COVID-19 uh, and have the first mission be uh, testing. Um, and so we know the National Guard will not be here forever doing their community testing uh, and then their place-based testing in factories and uh, long-term care facilities, places like that. Um, we're having a town hall on Thursday to talk with our special event medics, get some input. We're also talking with local health departments um, and getting some, some input there. So I think it's an exciting initiative. Uh, a way to really engage in the community uh, in a time of need. 
Uh, last is just a quick update on our uh, medical direction team. Um, so Dr. Chin has been in the assistant medical director role for I believe uh, two years uh, at least now, maybe more than that. Um, and so we're gonna to formalize that role to assistant medical director of education, which has been his focus um, for, for most of his time at OEM. And then Dr. Engel uh, and Dr. Sinclair were our fellows last year. Dr. Sinclair uh, has finished the fellowship and, and moved on and taken a job in Illinois. We wish him luck. Dr. Engel is gonna be spending some more time with us. He's finished finishing his fellowship uh, and then is gonna stay on uh, part-time as a faculty at the Medical College of Wisconsin working in the freight and emergency department. And then he's also gonna join us at OEM as an assistant medical director as well. So Dr. Engel is gonna be assistant medical director for quality. So you'll be seeing him uh, on PIRs, performance improvement reviews. Uh, you'll be seeing him more at our monthly quality meeting uh, and he'll be helping uh, work with Linda and the quality team to spearhead um, a lot of quality efforts as well. So uh, some good changes and some things to look forward to, I think. And I will hand it off to Dr. Chin to talk about a few educational initiatives. Yeah, great. Thanks, uh, Ben. And I know I'm excited to have uh, Tom join the team. So I think that's a, a great addition. Um, so just a couple quick updates from my standpoint. Um, so I know Dr. Engel is uh, instrumental in kind of um, creating this DMIST handoff. So that uh, trauma verbal handoff format. So the demographics, the mechanism, injuries, severity and signs and treatments. Uh, so there should be education on target solutions that's been pushed out to that. We're asking that um, that you guys take the education and then utilize that kind of verbal handoff format when you talk to EMSCOM. And then obviously when you bring trauma patients to, to Freightert um, for the handoff. The goals of the program really are to kind of improve the passage information, make sure we're um, you know, decreasing our miss rate on critical information, trying to do this as efficiently as possible over the radio and in person. Um, increasing direct patient care time for all providers and really, again, decreasing the verbal handoff time. So uh, I think it's a great addition to um, the guidelines. So if you guys wouldn't uh, mind taking a look at that education, again, that um, handoff format is available in the tools portion of the uh, app or the online um, guidelines. Uh, so whenever you have a chance, please uh, just take a peek at that and, and start using that. I think it'll be a great addition to our practice. Uh, and the other quick reminder is, again, this whole live stream um, application is available on select med units across the county. Um, so please take a look at the education again that's been pushed out on target solutions for that. Uh, there is a feedback portion uh, of this as well too. Again, this is a kind of a beta test for our system to use this new Zoles um, software. So if, if you end up using it with one of the med control physicians, um, if you would take just a few seconds and click the link at the bottom of that um, um, that uh, practical skill, it'll have a link to some feedback and we'd welcome any feedback you have on, on how that uh, software is working. Um, we're hopeful that we can expand this to more med control physicians in the, in the near future and so more to come on that. Um, and with that, I'll turn it back to uh, Jeff. Uh, thanks, Dr. Chin and Dr. Weston. Uh, some good, good updates. Uh, and welcome Dr. Engel officially to the team. Uh, not that you haven't been an outstanding member for the last year during your fellowship. It'll be great to continue working with you. Uh, again, and just to kind of echo Dr. Chin, especially if you're utilizing that Zoll live stream, if you do have any feedback, uh, please fill out the Cognito form for it. Uh, and if you have just any uh, tertiary experience or anything that you wanna let us know, uh, feel free to email that in. Uh, the more we can pass along back to Zoll, uh, the better we can make that product and make sure it's working well for the system. So uh, and with that, let's 
on with the show. So again, uh, topic for today's episode is uh, spinal injuries and spinal motion restriction. We've definitely seen a big change in this practice over the last, you know, certainly the last couple of years here, uh, going from we longboard everybody to, well, maybe that's not so great and they're more a moving tool. Uh, we've definitely had some updates to our guidelines. Um, and so I think we'll spend the next little bit of time. We'll go through some of those updates. We'll have a chat with Dr. Engel kind of on why we made those changes and what happened. So uh, Linda, I'm gonna grab you here. So historically, what kind of changes have we made recently to our guidelines and how we're approaching it no longer really spinal mobilization, but that spinal motion restriction approach to trauma patients. Thanks, Jeff. Our move away from the word uh, immobilization began about two years ago when we updated uh, the then spinal uh, guidelines to um, spinal movement precautions. Today's terminology is spinal motion restrictions. This is very recent uh, within the last year and a half. Uh, the, so our guideline that we have in place now reflects that most current, current consensus on the EMS treatment of the potentially injured spine. Um, this was from a consensus statement from our, our peers in trauma, emergency physicians, uh, along with pediatric uh, research groups. And uh, we took that information and incorporated that into our, our, our new guideline. The goal uh, in the previous case and in this case, the main goal, of course, is to minimize unwanted movement of the spine. And just a reminder to everybody that uh, the unstable spinal column injuries can progress to severe neurological injuries um, in the presence of excessive movement. So we want to take this very seriously and we want to make sure that our guideline is clear in how we can prevent that. So the goal in this document was, was to uh, provide um, better guidance for adults and in this case children as well, make sure that the indications are more clearly stated and to reduce harm from the backboard. The, we moved into our, our flowchart format with additional information in the ribbon. We um, gave some guidance regarding, um, for instance, um, patients with uh, C-collar, you know, why we don't want them in a seated position and how our, our recommendation is to lie them supine if possible, understanding that you may need to suction or provide care and, and you might raise the head of the cut 30%. But the main goal there is that we want to make sure that um, a person sitting up, uh, that they don't have that extra weight of um, the, with the cervical collar on that it places too much weight on the spine. And if you do have an un unstable injury, it can worsen that. Um, also, uh, something else that we've uh, addressed in here is consideration for high-risk patients, uh, patients that are for instance, under three or over 65, um, you know, the, the guidance for them that is also reflected in our paramedic evaluation policy. And that's basically taking extra precautions and giving extra consideration for high-risk patients in light of, of their trauma. The, the flow chart uh, 
focuses not only on pain and deformity, um, it, it also stresses a thorough cervical spinal exam, a thorough neuro exam, and a thorough muscular exam. Um, you'll see in some of the cases that we discuss later that it isn't always obvious to the provider unless a thorough assessment is done that there might be an underlying injury. So we hope in this document that we've provided the additional guidance uh, needed, also broken down by adult and pediatric to help you recognize, uh, protect, and um, appropriately uh, care for these patients. Perfect, thanks. Yeah, so definitely, you know, the biggest consideration is Aaron on the side of caution, making sure that the patients that we're treating are getting the best care that we can um, and hopefully having us not cause any or have, have any of their injuries worsen uh, due to our movement or transport. So uh, lots of updates in the last couple of years on our approach to uh, spinal motion restriction. Uh, so I'm gonna grab Dr. Engel and hope that he can kind of walk us through a few uh, topics on, you know, specifically looking at things like, it, you know, what's the science behind what we're doing here uh, as we've made these adjustments? Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. Thanks so much for uh, all the kind words earlier, and I'm uh, happy to keep going with this awesome OEM team. So thinking through spinal motion restriction, let's kind of just step back and think, why do we really care so much? Well, you know, these, uh, these patients who have possible spinal cord injuries have the potential for devastating outcomes um, and our spinal motion restriction can actually make these people better and improve their outcomes and these outcomes are not only death but severe morbidity with severe loss of function increase in healthcare dollars um, is known to occur when we miss spinal cord injuries and this is because these people will need more care they obviously don't have as good of outcomes and sometimes there's even lawsuits so this is really an important topic that we should really keep to our, the forefront of our mind while we're evaluating patients in regards to their need for spinal motion restriction. Now, taking a step back, let's think about a little bit of anatomy here. Specifically, the cervical spine holds seven cervical vertebrae. Within the vertebrae, I want you to all remember that there's the spinal cord, which essentially carries out and receives all sensory and motor inputs from the brain and then the body via the peripheral nervous system. So it's kind of like the middle ground to put out sensory motor information. And that sits within the cervical vertebrae and also that are surrounding them are arteries and veins. So we have all these things that can really get injured. And you know, emergency department visits, um, well, spinal cord injuries account for up to 2% of emergency department visits. So it's actually a really, really high number of these people presenting for emergent care. And these injuries that occur include fractures, twisting of the vertebrae, dislocations, crush injuries, bruisings to the spinal cord, um, and sometimes even injuries to the arteries and veins that run along the spinal cord. And all of these injuries, like Linda was mentioning earlier, have varying degrees of stability. Stability means how likely this injury is to move and then cause further injury or further neurological deficit for this patient. Unfortunately, knowing if a patient has an injury in their cervical spine and then further knowing if that injury is stable or unstable is really difficult to figure out without having x-ray vision. So we always have to err on the side of caution. Now, I think you all remember that historically, all blunt trauma patients had that standing takedown occur where we 
immobilize their spine and their neck for extended periods of time. They were on a backboard for a long time, which increased their rates of problems of breathing, pain, pressure ulcers. And if you now look at our spinal motion restriction guideline, you can see there's been some good science that show us we don't need to do that for everybody. The backboard's really for moving the patient and the long spine can really be restricted quite appropriately um, with a scoop stretcher, the vacuum mattress, or the cot stretcher. That's why we definitely have this in the ribbon of the spinal motion restriction um, guideline. So I think we're all kind of on the same page that the backboard's been out of the, out of the game for a while. But if you, the way we figured this out was by science and running numbers. And we kind of did that in the near past for EMS in regards to the cervical collar. And we kind of figured out that there are some people who need the cervical collar, or there's most people who need the cervical collar, but there's a small number of people we can avoid having it to put on because we know the cervical collar really isn't comfortable. We know it's difficult to put on. We know it causes skin breakdown on the chin and can increase intracranial pressure, make airway management a little bit more difficult. But even though there's some downsides to the cervical collar, when it's needed, it's really needed. And if you look at the guidelines that we posted, we effectively used something, the guidelines that were evaluated out of the Nexus study. The Nexus study included 34,000 patients with essentially the same rules that we have in our clinical decision rules for deciding on whether an adult needs a cervical collar. The Nexus study was up to 99% sensitive for catching those with a significant cervical spine injury. Um, and with these rules, they were able to reduce the application of a cervical collar uh, for, by 40%. So 40% more people did not require the collar if you use these rules. But what that really truly means is if a patient meets any of the rules that we have placed in our protocol, including altered mental status, neurological deficit, they truly do need this cervical collar because often we see that patients who are complaining of no pain and no step-offs are not placed in a cervical collar when they may meet one of the other criteria. And at this time, we've already done such a great job of removing the cervical collar for a large portion of our patients safely that when we do find an uh, indication for them to have the cervical collar, we should be readily placing them because these cervical spine injuries can be so devastating. Yeah, so there's definitely some cases out there, you know, and um, it, it's it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, my patient didn't have any pain on the neck, so I didn't bother to place the collar. But there's a lot of, uh, lot of presentations, a lot of injuries that can happen without that, that incidence of pain or, you know, noticeable injury to that C-spine area. Yeah, exactly, Jeff. And you know, I, the, the physical exam for the, the cervical spine can be even more difficult in a patient who's altered or a patient who might be intoxicated, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. So if they meet any of those guidelines that we put on there, you know, you should go ahead and put that cervical collar on because it's the safest option for the patient. Terrific. So yeah, and I think in, in our heads, oftentimes we, we're, we tend to think about our trauma patients as your MVCs, as your falls, uh, where we're really seeing those need for uh, cervical collars. But I can flash back to my EMT basic training uh, when they started talking about, you know, penetrating wounds to the torso and 
um, and still placing that collar. And the best answer I ever got for that is, well, because you're supposed to. Uh, but how about our patients with penetrating injuries? So you know, we get away from our fall patients, we get away from our um, some of our blunt MVC with a little bit of neck tenderness um, into some of more of those penetrating injuries. Yeah, Jeff, I love the question. You know, this definitely doesn't include the uh, unfortunate case of the person who gets a shot in the chest and then falls down 10 stairs or who's driving their car in, in a drive-by shooting and then crashes into a tree. But in pure penetrating trauma, um, we know the ultimate answer is these patients don't require a cervical collar, and here's why. So penetrating trauma patients require rapid transport to a trauma center. When researchers went and looked at penetrating trauma patients and their mortality rate over multiple studies, they found that mortality was actually doubled in patients who had penetrating trauma and a cervical collar placed. And the question was, well, why is this really happening? We were not 100% sure as to why that happened, but some of the thoughts are, it took, it took a long time for EMS to get the collar on. Um, it caused people to lose focus on the other more important injuries that required life-saving interventions, or it possibly led to some airway compromise. All of those things probably added up to worse outcomes. So when actually looking at a cervical collar, uh, cervical collar for penetrating trauma, um, they noted that if a person had a cervical spine injury from penetrating trauma, the mechanism was very different than blunt patients, and the addition of a cervical collar or spinal motion restriction did not change the stability of the injury, and unfortunately, almost all spinal cord injuries in the setting of penetrating trauma are completed on after the event, and additional spinal motion restriction will not improve their outcomes. So, what that truly does mean is that in pure penetrating trauma, without any signs of blunt trauma, spinal motion restriction does not need to be on your top of your list, and you should be considering all the other life-saving intervention you should be doing for this person um, and transporting rapidly to a trauma center. Perfect. Yeah, definitely. You know, limiting those scene times, uh, getting them to definitive care. You know, they always say the you know, the best treatment for some of those trauma patients is bright lights and cold steel and finding their way into the OR. So getting them off the scene and out to those those trauma centers is probably the best for them. Uh, but certainly, you know, if you do have that combination patient who has a penetrating injury as well as that blunt trauma, um, there is still some consideration then for the C-collar, just to clarify. Yeah, absolutely. If there is any sign of a blunt injury, say even the person took a... Uh, you know, got shot or stabbed um, and then had a, a fall down two steps or even a fall from standing that, that you're noting insignificant with signs of a head injury, you have to think critically in those scenarios. And yeah, then maybe a, a cervical collar would be indicated. But in somebody with pure penetrating trauma without any signs of blunt injury, you can avoid placing a C collar on these people safely and focus on LSIs. Perfect. Uh... You know, so we talked about it in general. We talked about some of the, these niche areas in the, in the solo penetrating injuries. Uh, one of the biggest challenges I found in my career is, is dealing with your pediatric trauma patients and really trying to do a good assessment. Um, what's the best way to approach spinal mobile restriction on those pediatric patients when they really sometimes, you know, if they're young enough, can't understand how to follow the commands for the assessment or can't really tell you where the pain is. So. Uh, what should we do with our peds? Yeah, wow. 
kids can be really, really rough. Um, you know, unfortunately, cervical spine injuries in kids are rare, but when they occur, they can be devastating. So they tend to occur higher in the cervical spine, in cervical spine vertebrae one and two. Um, and this means that they can affect more of the body below the injury when they do occur, including the diaphragm. Um, they typically occur from MVCs, sporting accidents, falls, or even non-accidental trauma. Um, and a lot of pediatric spinal cord injuries actually have no fracture that's noted on the x-ray. As kids get a really bad whiplash injury that affects the spinal cord because they have a really huge head that leads to this big fulcrum. They have really poor neck musculature. They have poorly fused spinal bones, and they also have really flexible spinal columns that allow their, their neck to bend a lot without fracturing, but obvious injuries to the cord. So to identify these injuries, we really can't use those, those rules that we were talking about earlier. So kids require a completely different set of rules. And like Linda mentioned earlier, the way we do our guidelines is all based on data. And what we did was we used the PCAR national database for developing the rules for pediatric spinal motion restriction. Um, and this is a national database that includes thousands and thousands of patients um, to let us know when we think that kids would require spinal motion restriction. So when deciding on restriction for a pediatric patient, the first thing you should do is really look at the mechanism of injury for this kid. You should see if they fit the high risk MBC or a diving injury, um, and then those patients should be restricted. Um, if you're speaking, if the patient can speak, you can try and ask them about neck pain. Um, but if they're not speaking, one of the really easy things is to look at a kid and see if they're holding their neck in a funny position. And that's what is known as torticollis. Um, kids do this really interesting thing. It, unlike adults, if they have pain, they tend not to move the area that hurts. So they tend to, if they have a significant neck injury, they tend to hold their head in a certain position. So if you're looking at them, kids not talking or they're too young to talk and their neck's tilted off to the side, there's another indication for spinal motion restriction. The other things you really wanna think about is the child altered um, and, or do they even spontaneously move all of their extremities? And if they're not, do they have an underlying neurological deficit that you're missing? And the last thing you'd wanna look for would be some kind of a torso injury. All of those things coming together or even uh, are things you need to look for, but if a patient meets one of those criteria in the pre-hospital setting, they should have spinal motion restriction placed. Um, and the way you really go about doing this, and just like an adult, is you try to slowly get the kid onto the stretcher, allow them to be in a position of comfort, and then get that cervical collar adequately placed where it's sitting nicely underneath the chin so that they can't nod their head forward and back, but they're still able to open up their mouth. That makes you... Um, think that the cervical collar is snugly placed and in the correct location. Perfect. So I guess really the, the big theme with all of these sections is, you know, if it's questionable, when in doubt, put the collar on. Uh, and we know it's certainly, you know, there are cases where it can be uncomfortable for the patient or difficult to get on without causing much more movement, but you know, it's area on the side of caution and what's best for the patient. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times if we really do a good exam and think through the possible complications, the possibility of altered mental status or underlying intoxication for all these patients, a lot of them will meet criteria even without having to go against our, ever go against the, the criteria that OEMs placed out there. Because it's, um, 
nationally known data that we base our criteria off of. And I feel like a lot of patients are easily placed out of this and we should still be restricting more patients than we're actively restricting at this point. Terrific. And, you know, kind of on that topic and, you know, the, some, some missed opportunities and maybe some things where there's room for improvement. Um, we're going to have Linda back into the conversation. I do know we were able to, you know, certainly dig through and find a couple uh, CQIP cases out there, some, uh, some good learning points in a, in a variety of different uh, patients. So uh, I'm going to kind of let, you know, Linda run us through some of the cases and then, you know, Dr. Engel or anybody who needs to or would like to chime in on some of the medicine and uh, approaches, have at it. Oh, and Linda, you're muted. Okay, so we have uh, three cases that we've um, brought in to highlight uh, some spinal um, precaution cases. Before I do that, uh, just to echo what Dr. Engel said, is our new guideline uh, has a good flow chart that will help guide you through this. And um, after we've uh, learned about this a little bit, I just wanted to kind of uh, go through that so that when we talk about these cases, all of which occurred before the guideline update, you might think about how we would approach that now. Um, all of these cases are, are blunt trauma cases, no penetrating trauma. So when we look at our guideline, you know, basically your, your first question is, does the patient have these two things first, altered level of consciousness or focal neurological signs and symptoms. If they do, they should have a collar placed. This includes under altered level of consciousness, patients with GCS less than 15, intoxicated patients, patients that are unable to follow commands. Be cautious, place a collar. For focal, uh, focal neurological signs and symptoms, a patient who has numbness, motor weakness, um, those kinds of presentations, they should have a collar placed. Uh, beyond that is where we break down for adults and pediatrics. And for adults, we continue on to, you know, does a patient have, you know, obvious like neck pain or tenderness? Do they have deformity? Um, those are, are, are generally pretty obvious, but do they have a distracting injury? Uh, another major fracture, burns, emotional distress. If, if they do, place a collar, be cautious. Um, when we look at our, our kids, uh, as, as Dr. Engel said, complaints of neck pain, torticollis, diving injury, torso injuries, or um, a high-risk motor vehicle crash, place a collar. Um, then, you know, when they fit those categories, you place the collar on, you keep the patient supine, and you maintain that position with transfers. And as a reminder, your backboard, consider it an adjunct that should be removed after transfer to the cot. Um, and again, it's not just about pain and deformity. All of these require a thorough neuro exam, thorough muscular exam, you know, thorough cervical spine exam. So with that in mind, the first case that uh, we're gonna discuss um, was a ground, uh, a fall down a flight of stairs. So this was brought to us from a hospital partner Patient fell down a, a flight of stairs. Um, it's transported by a BLS unit. 
And uh, the reason it was brought to our attention is that the patient had an incomplete spinal cord injury with a C3 to C6 contusion and central cord syndrome. Um, the way the narrative was written, it said the patient had been drinking, fell down a flight of stairs, vitals were good, he had some cuts on his face and he was alert, uh, able to answer questions um, and agreed to get checked out. Um, so we ended up doing a more thorough review of, of uh, this case. And um, Dr. Engel will uh, provide more details. Yeah, so if I remember correctly, Linda, this patient was thought to be intoxicated, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, so intoxication is a really, really difficult thing, um, not only for our pre-hospital providers, but also for our emergency department physicians, even in a, a very uh, sterile hospital setting. You know, when a patient is considered to be intoxicated, it can be really hard to decide if one, they're actually intoxicated because, you know, even if patients are, are intoxicated, they can still have really bad things going on in their brain or in their, for, in regards to their trauma assessment. The other thing is it's also really hard to know what really qualifies as intoxication. And I think you have to really ask yourself a couple of questions about whether you think the person can follow your commands, the person understands um, what you're saying to them, the person can allow you to perform a physical exam, um, and if that person's mechanism of injury was significant. And, you know, looking through this case, what we were able to see was this person may or may not have had alcohol on board. I suspect they probably did. But the examination of this patient wasn't really, uh, wasn't extraordinarily thorough. They they definitely didn't really document any upper extremity or lower extremity um, actual strength exam um, or a significant consistent mental status exam in this person. And what ended up happening was this person had an incomplete spinal cord injury, I believe without underlying fracture. Um, so I guess the moral of the story in these intoxicated patients is even if they're intoxicated, it doesn't matter. You have to consider if they have altered mental status, that they're not able to fully grasp your ability to communicate with them, just like you would with maybe a person with a cognitive impairment or a person who has uh, underlying dementia or some thought process issues. In those patients, you would be strongly considering the placement of a cervical collar. And just for a little bit more information on what these spinal cord injuries are, well, essentially they're bruising to the spinal cord. And when you bruise the spinal cord, what you can do is you can end up causing a neurological injury, typically below that level of the spinal cord. And these are really identified by very, by even basic neurological exams, getting good strength in the upper and lower extremities, making sure patients can feel their arms and their legs, um, and making sure patients can talk to you and breathe. Those are really the basics of a neurological exam that will identify a lot of these incomplete spinal cord injuries. So to sum it up, don't just consider your patient to be intoxicated. Remember intoxication isn't a diagnosis that we in the pre-hospital setting or even the ER anchor our hats on. And remember that intoxicated patients need to be able to provide you a very complete physical exam and history for you to not spinal restrict them in the setting of blunt trauma. Thank you. <clears throat> Our uh, next case is involves an elderly patient that had a ground level fall. So this was a 69 year old male um, who had uh, brief syncope, 
they, uh, there was some C-spine tenderness when the patient arrived at uh, the hospital. There, there was not a C-collar in, in place. Uh, they did place one, of course, immediately on arrival at the ED. Uh, they also had a facial laceration. The CT spine, sh uh, CT showed a type two fracture through the base of the odontoid. Uh, and the, uh, the narrative basically was a dispatch for a fall. The 69-year-old male lying supine on the floor by his front door. Um, he was walking to the door to open uh, for someone at the front door who was bringing his lunch to him. Um, he believes he fainted. That was confirmed by the female at the door who heard him fall. Uh, and then she saw him lying on the floor when she opened the door. Um, there was thought to be no loss of consciousness, although um, the later was described as syncope. Um, patient had pain on his nose, uh, laceration, shoulder pain, some abrasions. Uh, and his vitals were normal. Yeah, this one really, really is rough. Um, ground level falls in the elderly in our system are really well, well identified for possible head injury, but we tend to miss a fair number of spinal motion restrictions in these patients. Um, you know, elderly patients have a combination of weakened bones, stiff neck ligaments, and the inability to break their own fall due to poor reaction time which makes them twice as likely to have a cervical spine injury um, from any type of trauma. So these patients are extremely high risk to start, even from a, just a ground level fall. And if you look at our protocol, you know, we don't have an upper age limit as to when you would consider not running through the standard things you would consider looking at for the placement of spinal motion restriction. But in the, in the lower ribbon, we do identify that Patients over the age of 65 should be considered really high risk um, for underlying traumatic injuries, specifically even cervical spine injuries. And I think the things you really have to ask yourself are, is there a reason that I should not put this on? And if you walk through a close history and physical exam on these people, and you remember that they're extremely high risk for such horrible injuries, even from just a ground level fall, I think you're gonna be collaring a lot more of your patients and placing them into spinal motion restriction than you're doing now. Um, so just remember that over the age of 65, extremely high risk for horrible or really devastating cervical spine injuries from very minimal trauma. And in both these cases, um, the, the documentation did not show that there was a thorough exam. There were no detailed findings. Um, and um, also, the in this with this recent case with the or this the case that we just discussed with the elderly patient the our paramedic evaluation transport upgrade or turn down guideline also indicates under the trauma presentations that patients over age 65 should receive special consideration they are at higher risk of injury and death from trauma and they should they should go to the trauma center whether it's an ALS or a BLS transport, these patients should always go to the trauma center. So just a reminder about that. Our uh, third case involves a patient with paraplegia, uh, a neurogenic shock patient. So uh, this was also brought to us by uh, one of our hospital partners. It was a 59-year-old patient that was brought in by a BLS unit. Um, patient had been involved in an MVC. Um, the 
vitals appeared normal on scene. However, during transport, there was hypotension. And when the patient arrived to the ED, the patient's blood pressure was in the 80s, and the patient was completely unable to move their lower extremities. Um, patient was transferred to the trauma center, diagnosed with cervical cord compression, um, which was some edema and a non-hemorrhagic contusion from C2, C3 to C5. Um, and then some cord expansion at C3. So when we looked at the um, assessment for this patient, um, the narrative explained that it was a 50-year-old male with a chief complaint of chest pain, complained, also complained of neck pain after a car crash. Uh, vitals were normal, um, had an evaluation by an ALS unit, noticed a smell of alcohol on the breath, and then was transported to um, the closest hospital. The crew's impression was, was alcohol use, intoxication, acute and acute pain. Um, and again, they were transferred to the closest hospital by VLS. Yeah, Linda, so thanks for, uh, thanks for talking about that, Samantha. I'm gonna just talk just a little bit about kind of um, spinal shock or neurogenic shock. So the idea behind what Linda is mentioning is a couple things. So um, spinal shock can cause uh, what's in our protocols listed as a distributive shock and because it basically causes uh, arterial wall dilation. So when you have a severe spinal cord injury, and again, a most common cause of this is going to be trauma in our setting, um, usually a high impact kind of direct trauma to the spine. Um, in any predominantly young people is what we see this in. It can cause pretty significant primary spinal cord injury. And as a result of that, um, kind of below the level of injury, you often can lose uh, skeletal muscle tone. So in this case, you saw the patient unable to move kind of their lower extremities. Um, you can also lose your ability to have sympathetic tone. So what makes you have tachycardia and be able to constrict your blood vessels and maintain your blood pressure, that can all be compromised by significant spinal cord injury. So you saw in this patient a high spinal cord injury leading to kind of an inability to move the patient's lower extremities. You also saw hypotension come from that because they're no longer constrict their blood vessels to kind of maintain their blood pressure so their blood pressure can dip. Um, that's something that you can uh, help in the, in the field. That's something where we support their blood pressure with fluids. So if you look at our shock guideline, it kind of uh, recommends fluid bolus administration and then norepinephrine administration to really try to prevent what's called the secondary spinal cord injury, um, which is really that hypoperfusion event where they're no longer getting blood flow to the spinal cord. And as a result, they're getting more damage to the cord outside of the initial damage they had from that initial trauma. Um, so the way that we can make sure we recognize this is making sure we're doing good neurologic exams, recognizing a mechanism of injury that would support a spinal cord injury. Um, so you can have, uh, unfortunately, a little bit of a normal blood pressure with the initial spinal cord injury just because of a catecholamine surge. But then once that goes away, you get this profound, often hypotension because of the inability to really constrict those blood vessels. Um, so that's why it's very important to look for other neurologic signs. So in this case, the patient had no movement of their lower extremity, something that we'd want to make sure we assess on a patient with a significant mechanism. Um, also, there's probably some anchoring on intoxication again on this case. So you see a common theme amongst all these cases, which is really anchoring on that um, intoxication aspect, which unfortunately can hide, uh, as Dr. Engel mentioned, some severe injuries that kind of un that are under uh, the patient has undergone um, that are just being kind of maybe dismissed a little bit by just attributed to, to um, intoxication. 
the major causes of kind of spinal shock are really accidents like this. So motor vehicle accidents make up almost 50% of the spinal cord injuries that we see that cause spinal shock. You can also see it with falls and sporting accidents. Uh, and again, alcohol often plays a role, uh, but certainly you have to be cognizant of the fact that just because they're intoxicated doesn't mean they can't have a significant injury um, as a result. And again, our guidelines do a good job of addressing how to um, treat this in the field, which is really crystalloid or fluid boluses and norepinephrine. Just remember, unlike other forms of shock, because they don't have that sympathetic stimulation, they may not get that tachycardia that we traditionally see associated with shock, um, but they'll get this relatively profound hypotension associated with a, a relatively normal or even slow heart rate. Um, so something to keep in mind if you have a suspicion of spinal cord injuries, they don't always fit that very typical shock picture of really fast heart rate. Rates, uh, but they will show you that kind of low blood pressure oftentimes. Uh, and again, just not to be fooled, again, reinforcing what everyone else has brought up, not to be fooled by intoxication um, and making sure you're doing complete neurologic exam and not dismissing someone just because of intoxication. Uh, so thanks uh, for the opportunity to chat. I'll toss it back to Linda and Jeff. Thank you. Um, in all of these cases too, I'd like to highlight that um, all the providers indicated in their narrative that the vital signs were normal. However, it's not the only thing in your assessment. Vital signs alone are, are not your full blunt trauma assessment. And I think it's, as uh, Dr. Chin and Dr. Engel have said, it's very important to do the complete exam, um, especially uh, in these cases, your, your neurological exam, and then document pertinent negative findings. Document those so we know that you did that and, you know, hopefully you will uncover any potential injury and, and properly treat as well. All right. Thanks, Linda. Yeah, there's some, definitely some great learning opportunities there. Um, and I would like to say that uh, these were unique situations or something was odd or off that, you know, would, may have led to a, to a misassessment, but these are primarily uh, pretty common scenarios that we'll see. You know, an elderly patient falls from a stand, someone's intoxicated, falls down the stairs. MBCs throughout the system uh, are certainly a regular occurrence. So, uh, so hopefully we can take something away, just make sure we're doing those good thorough assessments, documenting everything very well. Uh, and then, you know, what again, you know, rounding back to what I keep saying, when in doubt, you know, throw that C collar on. Uh, it's going to be in the best interest of the patient. Uh, that being said, and I will certainly now kind of engage anybody uh, from the group that wants to jump in, Dr. Weston, uh, Dr. Engel, Tom, Linda. Uh, do have some questions this time around from the system, and they do seem to uh, fit well with the theme. Uh, certainly, you know, as we looked at our last case uh, with our ETUH patient, uh, and really the question is on those uncooperative patients and those that are, you know, it's difficult to convince them to wear a seat collar, you know, either if it's your intoxicated patient, maybe it's an elderly dementia patient who doesn't quite understand uh, what you're trying to do and how you're trying to help. Uh, suggestions on an approach for really trying to work with those uncooperative patients. Yeah, this is uh, Ben Weston. I can, I can start with this one. So thanks for the question. I think it's one that comes up a lot uh, among our providers. So uh, I think the question is kind of how much do you force the C-collar on somebody? So somebody's fighting you, uh, they don't want to have the C-collar on. Uh, what's sort of the risk benefit of 
holding them down or you know if they're really agitated sedating them uh, in order to keep that C collar on so uh, really I, I know this isn't the most satisfying answer in the world but this is where kind of the art of, of medicine the art of EMS comes in uh, and why these are really truly just guidelines um, and, and not written in stone and so uh, it's always worth emphasizing um, our EMTs uh, and in particular our paramedics uh, you are highly trained, um, you, you know what you're doing, uh, and use your judgment. So if you feel that it's not safe to hold a patient down, if you think it's just making things worse, uh, and you think that taking the collar off in a, in a relatively low risk situation um, is gonna make the patient safer, uh, then do what you think is most patient-centered, do what you think is safest for the patient. Generally speaking, uh, in these patients that, that have indications where they need to see collar, you want to have them in a C-collar. Uh, but if it means fighting the patient, if it means, uh, you know, potentially making any sort of injury worse, uh, use your judgment uh, and, and we'll support that. And I'll jump in even before Delinda gets to say it, document, document, document. <laughs> uh, document, <laughs> right. I, I saw Absolutely. it coming. So yeah, certainly if there's any variation, anytime you step out, you know, and, and do something that might be, you know, skirting on those guidelines or making changes uh, based on your field impression and what's going to be you think is best for the patient just make sure that that's well documented um, so anybody who's on the receiving end of that patient care can kind of understand what your thought process was and and where things went yeah and that i mean that's a great point and it goes broadly we talk about that i feel like uh what linda probably half the performance improvement reviews or more that we do uh talk about this and so c collar is a great example but it's also uh, you know, why did you transport that patient while they were in cardiac arrest? Why did you, uh, you know, deviate from this guideline, deviate from that guideline? Uh, there's usually really good reasons why, uh, but they're not, they're often not documented. And so anytime you deviate from any guideline, uh, oftentimes you're doing it for a really good reason. It's a patient-centered reason. It's provider-centered. Uh, it's what you think is the best decision, um, but it's just really hard to get that uh, if you don't document it. I agree. I think sometimes our providers forget that part of the purpose of documentation is to explain your medical decision making. It's not just how I found the patient, it's explaining your medical decision making as well. And as, as we've noticed in many of our reviews, uh, providers have, have done uh, precautions, they've done things they just haven't documented and we learn this in the reviews. Probably the most important part of documentation I'd say. Yeah. Uh, is that medical decision making. I can figure out that it was a 52-year-old female, I can figure out they called for chest pain, I can figure out what their vital signs were. I cannot figure out what was going on in your head uh, unless it's written in the medical decision-making. Excellent. Uh, so kind of sticking with that topic, you know, certainly we, we, you know, the last area was, you know, dealing with those uncooperative patients where it might be uh, questionable getting those, those colors on. Uh, along those lines then, um, and I'm actually gonna add one more scenario on here are your uh, anatomically difficult to apply the C-collar patients to? Uh, the, you know, the most common one that we talk about certainly in the education realm and in initial classes are your kyphotic patients, um, where there's definitely some curvature to the spine where it might be difficult to get them to lay perfectly supine to apply a collar. Uh, the other one I'm gonna throw at you is, and I'll, and I'll use myself as an example, uh, for those of us in the world who when we lay supine uh, we're no longer no necks, we're turtles, uh, where my traps can come up and touch my ears, my chins touch my chest. Uh, 
And, you know, for those patients, you know, how much manipulation and movement of that, that cervical spine in order just to get that collar placed? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. So I think it, it goes to the idea that, you know, what are we doing uh, when we're trying to do spinal motion restrictions? So really, we're doing just that. We're trying to keep the spine in a neutral position uh, and reduce how much it's moved around. If you have an unstable fracture there, we don't want to move it. We don't want that fracture to shift and start putting pressure on the spinal cord that can cause all sorts of bad things. So uh, the goal is not to get the person in what you think looks like a nice uh, spinal alignment. So if, if your 90-year-old patient has spent the last 20 years of their life uh, hunched over and their spine is, has accommodated that, we do not want to straighten that person's spine out. That's going to do all sorts of damage. Uh, and same uh, if, if poor Jeff uh, is one of our patients, uh, we don't want to, you know, yank his head a little up to make that collar fit. Um, if there's a collar that fits him, great. Uh, if not, we're going to use our medical decision making. We're going to use all the training uh, that we've had to try to keep that patient in a position of comfort and a position that minimizes motion. Whether that means you bring the head of the bed up 20 degrees, whether that means you position a pillow in just the right place, uh, whatever it means, we're trying to keep the patient in a position of comfort uh, that minimizes their, their spinal movement. Terrific. So if possible, great, uh, but certainly no need to wrench in anybody uh, right. just for the quality of the collar. Exactly. Uh, and so along those lines, and we certainly talked about, you know, some missed opportunities, you know, with our C-CUP cases, uh, but, you know, and this is especially for the docs, you know, working in those EDs, uh, you know, where are some areas where you'd see that field providers are commonly missing either on their assessment or their C-collar placement? You know, are, those, are, there the, are there those patients that, you know, they, you just think it's overlooked in the field that, you know, maybe it's not as noticeable for a collar placement? Yeah, you know, I'll throw in my two cents and then uh, uh, I think Dr. Engel's still on. And so um, he may have a different uh, input here, but I would say that the most common, I know we talked about this before, but it's worth reiterating. The most common thing I see is, um, the most common thing I see when a C-collar is not placed uh, is the discussion of, well, the patient didn't complain of neck pain. Um, and I'd say the second most common I see is uh, we didn't feel any step-offs. Um, I'll tell you, it's pretty rare that you're going to feel a step off. That's a pretty bad uh, spinal injury that you're going to feel a step off. Um, and we know uh, for a fact that many patients don't complain of pain. Remember, pain and tenderness are two different things. So pain is nobody's touching you. It just hurts. Uh, tenderness is it hurts when you push there. And so not many patients are going to, or a lot of patients are not going to complain of abdominal pain when they have a, a bleed uh, you know, a, a liver that's lacerated. A lot of patients won't complain, especially when you get in older populations, won't complain of neck pain um, when they have a small fracture in their neck. Um, you'll see a lot of patients that won't complain of pain. And so that's why our guideline really highlights these five different areas. Uh, and any one of these five different areas uh, is enough to collar a patient. And so that's altered level of consciousness. Uh, so that means not a GCS of 15. Any number other than 15, that's altered level of consciousness. Um, it, it's focal neurologic signs and symptoms. So you want to make sure they move in their hands or they move in their legs. Um, uh, midline neck pain or tenderness. So they're saying, boy, my neck really hurts. Or when you push on it, it hurts. 
uh, anatomic deformity. So those step offs, head turned to the side, things like that. Uh, and then distracting injury. So we're really looking for big injuries here. We're not looking for a cut on the knee. Um, we're looking for broken arm, broken leg, flail chest, um, pretty substantial injuries that are going to distract them from uh, the rest of what's going on. But that can be pretty bad road rash too. Uh, a lot of injuries can cause significant pain um, and can be distracting. So I think that's probably one of the main reasons I see that a collar wasn't applied. Um, as far as uh, when collars are applied and done incorrectly, uh, I'd say two things. I'd say one is um, uh, it causes me pain when I see uh, a patient in a collar uh, wheeling down the hallway of the emergency department sitting up straight. Um, that collar is just not doing uh, its job properly when a patient is up straight. Our heads are pretty heavy uh, and the collar does not support the weight of the head. And so if that patient happens to have an unstable C-spine fracture uh, and they're upright and their head is putting pressure on their spinal column, um, it can shift. And so that's why uh, until they get a proper assessment of their neck, uh, we want them supine or, or very close to supine, maybe uh, the head of the bed up just a few degrees um, for position of comfort. Uh, and then the last uh, time when I see it uh, improperly applied is uh, when it's literally improperly applied. Their chin is, you know, inside the collar, the collar's up over their mouth, uh, the collar's twisted sideways, um, all sorts of things like that. And that happens. It happens during transfers. It happens as the patient grabs it and adjusts it. Uh, I certainly understand that, but that's why we want to continually uh, assess these patients and make sure um, the collar's in a, in a good position. Terrific. Thanks, Doc. Uh, you know, certainly a lot of opportunity out there. And again, you know, it's hard for us to see in the office what you guys are seeing out there in the field all the time. So um, we're entrusting to you the ability to use your critical thinking and make that and make those medical decisions based on the patient's best interest on what's going to be beneficial to them. Uh, and it's a, just a, one more time, document, document, document. Um, those narratives are extremely valuable, uh, not only in our office for, for QA processes, but as well as the hospital so they can uh, make determinations on what was done in the field and, and see how that patient care is going to progress as they go. Uh, Dr. Engel, anything to add on the missed injuries or issues? Nope, not at all. Dr. Western covered it all. Thanks. Perfect. Uh, then that brings us to the end of our day. Uh, leave it open to anybody if you have final comments, thoughts, questions, uh, motivations for the system, anything you want to put out there. Actually, that's the excitement I'd like to see. Uh, in that case, thanks, everybody. I uh, appreciate you joining us today. Uh, stay tuned. We'll have episode six out next month. Uh, with that, stay safe and keep being awesome.